My name is Alec Crawford, and this is Stay, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you at home, at work, and around the world. I am discussing these topics with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes much deeper than other sources. Find out answers to questions like, can artificial intelligence save the planet? And how does ESG investing affect you? We can build a better, sustainable future together. Welcome, everyone, to the Stay Sustainable podcast. This is Alec Crawford, your host. And our very special guest today is Christian Perry, former co-founder and CEO at Chatterquant, and now co-founder and CEO of Undetectable AI. So welcome, Christian. Thank you, Alec. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me on. Wonderful to have you here. So, uh, Christian, I usually start on people's careers, but my younger son recently became an Eagle Scout, and I noticed you're Eagle Scout. So tell us a little bit about what you learned about leadership from scouting. Absolutely. Well, first off, congratulations. Um, I mean, uh, scouting was absolutely incredible in terms of uh, teaching me leadership and exposing me to a lot of scenarios that, that have been very helpful in my entrepreneurial journey. Um, I was a senior patrol leader, which really helped me with, you know, how do you manage different personality types? That was my exposure, first exposure to that. Um, as well as public speaking, lots of public speaking when you're standing in front of the troop or at people's court of honors, which are the celebrations for when people get Eagle Scout to those who don't know. And um, as well as kind of being able to handle distressed individuals. I mean, I remember some people on their first time ever camping would get homesick or have issues with that and being able to go in there and, and help them through those scenarios are all kind of skills that I've been able to transfer to my businesses and ventures. So awesome. And, and what was your Eagle Scout service project? So I had an interesting project and I actually got a lot of pushback from um, the committee when I presented my project, even after I'd done it, where I packaged, I raised money for, packaged up, and then shipped off 50,000 vitamins to Haiti, kind of a little bit after the earthquake there, and, and you know, obviously was hoping to get them the nutrition and supplements that they needed. And um, I had to make the argument about the what the long-term impact of that was, you know, versus a bench, which is kind of a more common project. And um, my argument was, you know, these people are going to live longer, hopefully. So there is some long-term impact there. That was a great project. Awesome. And, you know, going, going to school, I think you were smart to include entrepreneurial studies in your course of study. What, what made you think of that? Yeah, so that was a really, I've always known I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I mean, very early on, I, I've kind of had my small little entrepreneurial endeavors. And that was something that was really encouraged within my household and my family. Um, and it was something unique that Boise State University offered as a major, which um, I very quickly jumped at the opportunity to do that, as well as business administration, something that might be more applicable if I ever did decide I didn't want to be an entrepreneur for, for whatever reason, I didn't think it was for me. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was great. You get a lot of introductions there to local VC, local leaders and, and other entrepreneurs to that program. 
That's awesome. And and uh, didn't you win a, a some kind of prize for one of your projects while you were in school? Yeah. So I did get the Kobe Innovation and Inspiration Award while I was in school, which is a College of Business and Economics Innovation and Inspiration Award. And that was actually specifically for my work with ChatterQuant, which I did started during my schooling career. That's so awesome. And then, and then obviously at some point you moved to California and work for Jane's Capital Partners for a little bit. What, what do they do? Yeah. So they are a, um, M and a, uh, firm that does buy side and sell side advising for the aerospace and defense industry. And I worked there over the summer as a summer analyst and really enjoyed that and learned a lot. Oh, that's cool. Is that the same as like the Jane's, you know, you know, books with all the planes and stuff in them or totally different from that? Totally different family. Uh, well, so I can say that Dave Jane's, who was one of the founders um, of that company, was it, it might be. I actually don't know the answer to that. Yeah, might be might be related or something like that. Anyway, so. You prickly headed pr pretty quickly headed off in an entrepreneurial direction um, after that. So, in terms of like concept and business plan and fundraising, just tell us a little bit about that for ChatterQuant. Sure, absolutely. Um, so, uh, it was kind of an interesting story about how I met my business partner. We were both trading together um, within a trading Discord. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that platform, but you know, chatting back and forth. It's primarily for gamers, but we used to spend hours and hours a day on there. Um, he's located in the UK, United Kingdom, and not not based here. I had begun to pick up a little bit of a following on social media for kind of some of the data projects that or data pieces that we were putting together and posting out to um, to my following. And he has a background. He's a PhD in machine learning and natural language processing. And then we started trading very heavily on social sentiment data, which was primarily ChatterQuant's focus. And from there, we found that there really weren't at least what we thought were a lot of good options in terms of being able to accurately in real time start accessing this data. And so we decided to, to start a company together. Um, from there, you know, we, we started building it. At that point, we hadn't met each other yet. It was, um, we're working 12 hours a day on this, this project. And, you know, set up a bank account, set up an LLC, which was then later converted to a C-Corp after we uh, did our fundraising. In terms of a business plan, I, I wish I could say it was a little more structured and organized than it was. We, we just ended up seeing a real demand and a need for this information and slowly started talking with people and trying to see, you know, hey, would you pay for this product? And as we saw that they were willing to pay for the product, um, we just continued to build and, and kind of iterate based on the feedback that was provided for us there. Fundraising is something we held off on for quite a while. We first launched ChatterQuant as a B2C platform um, and we're offering it to traders who wanted to monitor what was going on in Wall Street Bets and um, expanded into Twitter and multiple different subreddits as well and then eventually into news. But we, I mean, we were, we were profitable very early on um, and didn't start raising money until we decided we wanted to go the B2B route, which gets a little bit tougher. We got you really long sales cycles there. And so we, um, that's when we started looking to fundraise.
Got it. Makes sense. And then, uh, you know, Harry Stebbings at 20 VC loves talking about controlled chaos. What was that like at ChatterQuant? Did you feel like there was controlled chaos? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'd sometimes say it didn't often feel all that controlled, but we did have a kind of set of rules in place and everybody was on the same team in terms of wanting to achieve the same goals, but we would obviously operate very separately on the tech side from the the sales side until um, we identified something maybe on the sales side that needed to be built. But we really focused on quick wins. Everything was results-based. And we kind of had a test that we uh, started implementing later on, which was how does this build, especially with limited resources, impact the bottom line? Right. That was a question we would ask on just about everything we did in terms of how do we prioritize that. And we had a pretty democratic prioritization process, meaning that we would kind of get everybody together and find out, you know, from everybody's point of view, what should we prioritize and work on first? Um, But from the outside, I'm sure that looked quite chaotic. Yeah, that's interesting. So what else can you tell us about, you know, the culture? Obviously, you built it up to, you know, a number of people there. So um, so a little bit. Our culture was was interesting. I mean, it was I, I, I mean, chaotic, as I can say. I mean, it, it really was. We were all people that really wanted to build something new and different in the finance space, specifically around natural language processing. Um Lots of different um, personalities that that we were dealing with, and we we didn't have this outline or set rules or or kind of established company culture. It was very much, you know, we recognized where everybody had their strength and we let them kind of operate within that space and and work how they wanted, which, you know, sometimes is great and other times is less less so. Yeah, fair enough. Now going back to venture capitalists, what did they find most attractive about ChatterQuant, do you think, especially when you're starting to go to the B2B route? Sure. I think the most interesting thing about us was our niche and the the fact that this technology was kind of transferable to different different avenues. For instance, politics was an interesting one that let's just say for whatever reason, finance didn't take off. It was something that we could pursue or utilize our core technology to start serving other industries. Super interesting. And uh, so you're using different kinds of models. You mentioned NLP. I assume you're using large language models as well. Correct. We started using large language models very early on at ChatterQuant. Um, as they started to really blow up in November of last year, it's we kind of quickly realized how disruptive they would be, um, not only in terms of how it could improve our own technology, but we also saw that it led to a lower barrier of entry for everything that we had built and trained custom models on. And that was part of the reason that led us to uh, to our sale at that point in time. Got it. Were you using any other type of AI at that point or? It, so we were heavily NLP focused. Um, we did develop custom sentiment models. I mean, the way people talk about talk on Wall Street bets or on Twitter is very different than in an email, right? So you can't use these off the shelf um, natural language processing models because 
the word put, like I'm going to put something on the table in trading is obviously, you know, somebody betting against the stock typically. And, um, whereas in, in everyday language, it's going to be, Hey, I put something on the table, which is neutral. Right. And so, I mean, right. all yeah. these small things sure. that you had to label and, um, I mean, yeah, we really had to create a custom dictionary for Chatterpon. Super, super interesting. And, and were people using a lot of options, like puts and calls? Because that would complicate it even further, right? Options were huge, especially around COVID, right? Or right after COVID, because yeah. it, it allowed traders to leverage. Um, yeah. Leverage, yeah. So what did, what did you encounter in terms of security risks or other potential uh, issues with AI? And how did you deal with that? Yeah, I would say the most kind of interesting thing, specifically for us at least, was the fact that we were a tool that took data from things that people were posting online, right? And we weren't the only company doing this. Um, but people and traders, specifically retail traders, started becoming aware that these kind of tools existed and would attempt to kind of manipulate the data on these in terms of posting large amounts of positive to try and of uh, you know positive posts to try and influence what was you know being read on on tools like ours as well as there started being um bots especially in the crypto crypto space where we would see a coin cryptocurrency or a coin that had never been discussed before immediately start having 30 to 60,000 comments a day. And when you dove in and looked at it, every single one of them was from unique bot accounts. So they were creating 60,000 plus unique bots to try and manipulate the price of these assets. Wow, that is amazing. And obviously you had to detect that Correct. and exclude it from your algorithm and things like that. That's super, super interesting. Um, and, and did you ever figure out like who set those up or these big companies or individuals or people not in the U S or I would say the majority of them were outside the U S cause you can get cracked down on pretty hard for doing stuff like that here. Um, so that's what we were seeing, mm -hmm. but, um, typically it was actually the creators of these coins in a lot of cases or a whale yeah. that held a lot of that cryptocurrency that would yeah. do that. Got it. So let's let's turn to your your new venture, undetectable AI. Uh, it's probably still in stealth mode, but uh, tell us what you can. Sure. So we're we've launched. Um, we're out. It's a little bit of a controversial product. Um, what we do is we actually take AI generated text from tools like ChatGPT or Bard and um, remove the AI markers and what that from that text. And so what that means is essentially if somebody um, if you create a text through ChatGPT, there are things called AI detectors that go and are able to detect based on structure. Um, I mean, and not very well. They are getting better in, in some cases, but um, whether it was a handwritten human piece or whether it was generated by a large language model. And what we do is we go and we rewrite this content using another custom trained um, large language model and AI model to um, remove those AI markers so that people can use AI without punishment. And I can expand a little bit more on that as well and what that means. For instance, we've heard uh, at the beginning when these large language models first started coming out, Google came and said, hey, we're not gonna rank any content that we catch using AI. 
Um, they've since kind of stepped back and said, okay, we're going to let AI content rank, but only if it's you know high quality and serves the user. But we are seeing lots and lots of companies. That's why they've been coming to undetectable AI. We have been seeing a lot of these companies that are getting penalized for using AI content. So we work with a lot of news stations who are trying to use AI in their workflow, as well as marketing firms, freelancers, et cetera, who want to be able to use AI without punishment um, from whether that be their clients, search engines, things like that. Wild. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of controversy about that. And also, you know, a bunch of uh, books on Amazon are apparently, you know, AI generated. And, you know, people get the, you know, tour guide to Paris and they read the first chapter they're like, oh, my God, this is not written by a real person. Sure. That is. <laughs> so you got stuff like that going yeah, on. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting to kind of see what's happening here in this space. Um, we really built uh, undetectable AI to, to empower small businesses to be able to put out content at the same rate and speed as larger corporations. I mean, that was something that at Chatterquant, we felt when we were trying to compete with providers that were listed on NASDAQ and things like that, that was very, very difficult. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's been super interesting as well as the fact that the false flag rates on a lot of these AI detectors are causing huge issues in academia as well as the workforce. We have people reaching out talking about how for their handwritten piece, they got pulled into, you know, their boss's office who says, you know, hey, if I catch you using AI again, you're fired. And they're saying, well, I didn't use AI in the first place. If I use your tools, that can keep me from getting fired, which to me is a horrible thing to hear. I don't, you know, the fact that people are, are fearing for their jobs based on um, getting false flagged by these detectors, especially they're such a new technology and they're not perfect and people are leaning on them very, very heavily. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So, so tell us a little bit about the team. So I have my business partner is the same one who I've started and founded and sold Chatterquant with brilliant NLP, perfect spot for him to be. Um, as well as myself, I manage marketing sales and that side of things. We have a team of about 10 based out of the Philippines right now. And we've been able to do that for marketing and customer support. We've been able to do that and really keep our costs down. Um, that way, as well as, I mean, scale and grow really rapidly. We just passed 2.2 million users. Um, and so, yeah, it's been an exciting time. And on the development side, we have uh, a few other PhDs and AI natural language processing experts. Well, that sounds great. Sounds like you're you're really on on track. It's kind of you know wild. It's the wild west right now, it's right? So, so interesting. It's and it's changing each month. Um, you know more than other industries change in a year or years. It's it's a lot to yeah. keep up with. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so obviously when, when you were, uh, running Chatterquant, you ended up with a, a pretty big social media presence. So what was your, what was your secret for, for growing your presence there to a following of over 35,000 people? Sure. Um, that one was all about how do we leverage people who already have large followings? And I don't know how applicable this is in, in necessarily other industries or spaces, but I, I do think there are ways to do this. For instance, we created kind of a rating system on financial influencers in the space. And the way we would do that is very um, we, completely unbiased. We would go back and look at, you know, six months ago, the stocks that they 
had you know posted about and then we would go to today and and we would take those 10 stocks closest to that six month date go to today and see how did they perform and then we put together a graphic and post that and tag the creator who did it um and what was really interesting about that is that an influencer if they were really mad about it and disagreed would retweet it or quote tweet it and say they're wrong because of this or we you know and 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 defend themselves whereas if somebody had a really good rating they'd retweet it and say look how great i am um and so a lot of people were seeing our account that way um secondly was posting unique insights if you're able to post something unique and insightful that people are interested in uh you're going to get retweets which on on twitter or x um i think i don't know what x calls them now but um you're able to really get your brand out there to a bunch of different people um additionally hopping on trends is is a good way to do it if there's something that people are talking a lot about and that was something we had pretty easy access to at chatterquant um posting about those things is going to get you engagement which in turn is going to get you in front of the people who are engaging with you's followers and it kind of you know spreads out from there and uh yeah if there was positive news about something people were talking about we would typically post that out and get a lot of retweets and tweets for instance for instance with AMC or GameStop if something came out there's a lot of diehard GameStop AMC fans especially at the time they would go and share that to their followers which would expand our following oh super cool and now going back to AI what's what's your advice about building an AI an AI team like what different types of skill sets do you need what's super interesting kind of about the AI, specifically the large language model space. Um, and I, I'm just going to preempt this with I'm more the sales and marketing side. My business partner handles more of the really in-depth, hard tech, deep tech stuff. Um, but there really aren't a lot of experts in the LLM space, right? I mean, it's relatively new. There were obviously a few people working on it on these really, really old models that have been out for years. But in general, there are very, very few experts in the space. And so you really have to, when you're looking at hiring people or working with people, take it with a grain of salt. And if they say, hey, I have a ton of experience working with large language models, look at you know their other experience. And we assign a weight more heavily to that than we do the claims for LLM, because it's there's just a lot of people who, I mean, if eight months makes you an expert, I mean, maybe it does, but at the same time, uh, there's just so much, so much more to learn with these LLMs. It, it is difficult to build a team in the AI space. Yeah, and I mean, do you think we're close to the limit in terms of what they can do at this point, or we still have a lot more to go? No, I think we're still very much at the very beginning. I would equate where we are to the beginning of the industrial revolution. I really would. It's. Um, for instance, we're just now starting to hook up things like speech synthesis um, with large language models, right? And the, where we're seeing that yeah. being applied, for instance, is cold calling or warm lead calling, where we just hooked up to a large language model. And as wow. you start, you know, attaching video and all that to it, I mean, we could be having a Zoom call right here and I could be AI and it may take you quite a minute to know it or you may not know it. And I think that's really where we're headed without barring some yeah. kind of regulation. Yeah. Well, about that, I mean, obviously, you know, Europe started to regulate that. Uh, they've got their AI Act. And uh, you know, what 
What do you think the U.S. politicians might do about that? I think it's that's a really interesting question and and a tough one, right? Because if we, I mean, obviously there are reasons to regulate AI um, in terms of transparency, in terms of safety, in terms of um, maintaining jobs. But if we, for instance, in the U.S. decide to ban AI or put a whole bunch of rules and make, you know, usage of a strict, you know, usage limits on on how you use AI and then some one of our someone like China or Russia decides, hey, we're not going to do that. That really does put the U.S. at a major disadvantage um, or any country that decides, hey, we are going to be very free about how you let how we let you use AI. I mean, that's where I'd locate my company as I mean, as long as it was friendly. But that's that's what you're going to see. And what's going to happen is that there's going to be these companies that will kind of own this industrial revolution, as I as I called it here, because they have lax limits. Yeah. And how about just, you know, from a corporate perspective, forget about governance for a second, risk managing AI, what should companies getting into AI for the first time watch out for? I would say hallucinations would probably be the biggest one. And for people who aren't familiar with what that is, that's where if you kind of ask a large language model a question it doesn't know or ask something very specifically, it will respond with it. it will, I mean, it will respond with nonsense. And uh, one of the more recent cases of this happening that I'm sure a lot of people heard of was a lawyer who was doing his due diligence through chat GPT and um, stood up in court and started referencing fake cases as established case law to defend his argument. Um, and the cases, yeah, didn't exist, were completely fake. And so that's something obviously to be very wary of. That was embarrassing for this individual, of course. And if you're putting out information that is false through your product or to your team, obviously, yeah, that's not great. Uh, kind of what I talked about earlier as well. A lot of people in the space are not experts because it's such a, a young industry. And even somebody, if I were to look at somebody who worked, you know, briefly on a large language model 10 years ago, I, I don't know how much weight I would assign to that now, just because of how rapidly this space is changing and how the techniques are changing. I mean, it's just so rapid. And um, being careful about do you own your data or outputs is something IP is obviously something that a lot of people are talking with about um, specifically within this space. I do think, and I I've been talking to several attorneys um, that kind of specialize in this space that the courts are going to be leaning towards, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but um, the courts are probably going to be leaning towards, yes, you do own the outputs that come from large language models and kind of the, some of the signals that show that, for instance, Microsoft agrees with this is they've recently come out and said, hey, if you get sued using our co-pilot, um, we'll defend you. We'll pay for your defense um, in terms of, you know, IP ownership. And so I, I, I've seen that and a couple of other things as a pretty big signal that people think, yes, you're eventually going to own your outputs. But obviously that's a risk if you create uh, you know, a website or content, sell a bunch of it, and then it turns out you don't own the rights to it. Yeah, that could be an issue. And then uh, switching gears to people just getting into this area, you know, I've got people who are undergrads or super interested in AI, like what kinds of classes should they take or what advice do you have for them? 
classes are hard. That's something I've been kind of trying to champion with Boise State University, the local university here is really trying to push, hey, start integrating this in school. Don't, you know, take a hard stance against it. Um, I think that especially internships are huge. And this is something I've talked about recently with some other people. Um, if, If you can find an unpaid internship at a better company, I always say, you know, take that one versus maybe a paid internship at somewhere a little bit less esteemed or renowned or relevant to what you do, because that's gonna kind of pay dividends to you in the future, right? If you're able to go to another company and show that you have relevant work experience, that's very applicable to what they do from a good brand name that's going to go a lot farther than you know the 15 to 20 dollars an hour you may have been making at a, at a paid internship um and i would say even for people who aren't interested in ai i think everybody should be learning how to use llms i think it's going to be so disruptive and ubiquitous within the workforce and people are going to hire individuals who know how to use them rather than those who don't even if maybe you have a better GPA. For instance, at at our company, and obviously we are an AI company, but I would rather hire a 3.2 GPA over a 4.0 if the 3.2 knew how to use large language models in AI and the 4.0 maybe didn't. Um, And then stay up to date with the latest tools. If you know how to use some of these tools and you approach a company, and say, hey, I think we can. you can really improve your processes by implementing this, and I really know how to use this, that's a huge value add that somebody with maybe 20 years experience in the industry won't have. So I, I really think being able to use AI tools puts you in a great position and gives you an edge against other candidates, maybe even who have years of experience. Yeah, and I, I believe that's going to be a big differentiator in the job market over the next few years. Totally agree. So so the last five minutes is a lightning round where I mention different things and ask if you think they are underrated or overrated and why. So we'll, we'll kick it off with living in Boise, Idaho, underrated or overrated? I absolutely love it. I would say underrated but there's a ton of people moving here right and so there is a lot of uh a lot of people who who maybe think it is overrated but i'm i'm super outdoorsy i love you know i ride motorcycles i love skiing um the weather here is great we have all four seasons motorsports so snowmobiling in the winter and atving in the summer and it's a lot more affordable than some other places like new york or california awesome Reading the Wall Street Journal every day, underrated or overrated? Underrated. I really wish I had the time to do that. I absolutely would. It's something um, you know my parents did and have done, and I wish I was able to do and had the time to do. Yeah, when I had a commute, it was a little easier. Sure. Uh, Cal- California beaches, underrated or overrated? I think they're overrated. It's, I mean, the water is very cold. It's often very crowded. I, I, I am or was a big surfer, but still, I would say overrated. Elon Musk, underrated or overrated? I think Elon is undeniably brilliant, um, but I'm not personally f- a fan of him. Um, but I would never bet against him either. I mean, you look at people who shorted Tesla and how they've just gotten annihilated. Idaho potatoes versus the rest of the country, underrated or overrated? 
I feel like I have to say underrated or I'm going to get chased out of town. <laughs> Cryptocurrencies, underrated or overrated? Uh, I would say both. I would say people who crypto deniers are going to be wrong, but I also think crypto maximalists are wrong. So if you're a crypto maxim maximalist, then I would say you're underrating the cryptocurrency um, or overrating. And if you're a denier, then you're underrating it. Good answer. Electric motorcycles, underrated or overrated? Overrated. Becoming an Eagle Scout, underrated or overrated? Underrated as well. I learned so much from, from that. Scott Galloway, NYU Stern marketing professor, underrated or overrated? Underrated. I'm, a, I'm actually a huge fan of Scott Galloway. Not, I know not everybody is, but I loved his book, Algebra of Happiness. I think he says a lot of no-nonsense stuff that kind of goes against what, what other people say in terms of how hard you need to work. I completely agree with that, how you need to put in more hours than the guy next to you to be successful. So yeah, underrated. Work hard, no life balance early on is kind of what he preaches, and I kind of agree. Podcasts as a marketing tool, underrated or overrated? I think they're very effective, underrated, but they are a ton of work. I mean, I'm sure you know that. They are a lot of work to put together and keep going. And, and it takes a, a really good audio engineer, too, to make it sound good. Uh, last one, the Star Wars movie series, underrated or overrated? I never got into Star Wars, so I'm going to say overrated. Awesome. All right. Well, look, uh, Christian, great to have you on the show. This has been Christian Perry, former co-founder and CEO at Chatterquant and now co-founder and CEO of Undetectable AI. Awesome to have you, Christian. Thanks so much for having me, Alec. You were listening to the State Podcast. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and comment. And you can also find us on stayblog.substack.com. Thanks. Thanks.